0: I apologise to those of you who weren't here last week because you are dropping halfway through a sermon. Um, I said last week that the sermon I preached last week was so long it needed to be split over two weeks. And so this is the second half of last week's sermon. But if you weren't here, don't worry, it wasn't that difficult. Um, We're getting into this book of 1 Corinthians. And what we've been seeing is that this is a church that's got messed up because they've pushed Christ out. Um, So just look down with me at chapter 1, verse 10. And you'll see that there's these divisions. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say. there be no divisions among you, but you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. So here's this church It's getting split into different groups and different factions. They've got their favorite preachers. It's all going, like, mad. It's messed up. And what we saw last week was that Paul said, you've got to get back to Christ crucified. That's the message. The message is Christ, the powerful king, who died in agony on a cross to save humanity. That's the message. Christ crucified. Stop faffing around with everything else And that is what you need to get absolutely front and centre. And we were thinking last week particularly that it is an unimpressive message, that actually the world is not going to be impressed. In fact, it is going to deliberately confront the world. So have a look down at verse 20 with me. Paul says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So here is the thing, right? Christ crucified. This message is going to seem foolish to our world. It's unimpressive, but it's actually really powerful, the power of God. And after last week's talk, there were two thoughts buzzing around like irritating flies, uh, And several people asked me about them. Which is why I wanted to do two talks on this passage. Because it's it's got such big stuff in it. Here are the two questions. And these are the two questions we're going to try and address today. Firstly, who are the philosophers of this age? Who is it today that sets the agenda? What is it that our world believes today? Who is the philosophers of this age? That's question one. And question two... How do we embrace unimpressiveness? In other words, if you're a musician, how do you do that unimpressively? I mean, I, I, I could do that. <laughs> what, does that look, what does that really look like? That's what we're going to get into today. I want us to push. Okay, I want us to try and think about those, those two questions. So let's start with this. Who are the philosophers of this age? By which I mean, what is the prevailing wisdom in our culture, the beliefs that people hold so strongly that you can't really even challenge them, that people don't, they don't even think about, they just, they're just kind of, it's self-evident, that's obviously true. In your, uh, you know, in your workplaces or in your university or, or wherever you hang out, what is it that people just believe? You can tell it because they can't comprehend that it might be wrong. The truth don't have to be proved. They're just true. They're kind of, they define who we are. They're our story. Now, I, I, that's a big question. And I have no idea exactly how to sum that up. But I'm going to go for three statements, all right? That I think our world today in London holds as obviously true that the gospel directly contradicts and therefore the gospel seems foolish here's the first one and you can tell me listen okay as i'm doing this listen think think about your friends think is that right is is, 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 that, is that is he right about that is that what my friends think here's the first one i am good i am good the basic assumption is that i am a good person not perfect, I don't think many people would say they're perfect, but most people would say I'm basically good. Oh, and by the way, when I say good, I define what good is. I define my morality. I get to say what is right and wrong. No one else can tell me what's right and wrong. I choose that. I don't care what you think. As long as I'm happy with myself, I I'm good. It's funny, we even say that sometimes. How are you doing? Are you alright? right? right? Yeah, I'm good. Okay, (laughs) big claim. (laughs) I'm good. It's one of our basic assumptions about ourselves. And we sort of say, and I don't care what you think. I'm going to live the way I think is right. I'm going to do what I think. Oh, but actually I do care. I do care what you think because I crave your approval and I need you to affirm that I'm good. So here I am standing my ground saying, I will do whatever I think is right. Am I right? Do you think I'm right? Can you affirm me? And we want to be affirmed in our rightness. And we crave approval and therefore we have a massive lack of self-confidence because although we define ourselves as good, we fear that others might disapprove of us. So we become insecure and nervous and stressed about trying to show that we're good. That's the first one. I'm good. Here's the second one. Um, I am special. I am special. <coughs> if I went into a school assembly today, and well, not today, because there'd be no one there. If I went tomorrow morning to a school assembly and said, listen, children, I've got something to tell you. You're not special. That's the problem, right? Because it is a basic assumption that underlines everything about our culture that you are special. You're valuable. You're worthy. You see, if I then say to kids, how do you know you're special? What makes you special? How do you know that? Well, I don't know. I just am. That made me think about it. I'm not sure. Oh, it's because I'm unique. Yeah, just like everyone else. (laughs) Right? Because everyone's unique. What is it that makes us special? And the danger is that what happens is that my specialness, my value, comes from my performance. It comes from how beautiful I am, or the grades that I get, or my talents, or my abilities, or how good I am at sport, how many friends I've got, my popularity. That's where I get my value from and suddenly... I'm all over the place. And yet, there's this basic underlying assumption I'm special. And if I'm special, therefore, I'm sort of entitled. I deserve to have a a nice life. I don't deserve for bad things to happen to me because I'm special. Here's the third one I am free. I can do whatever I want to do. I guess it's it summed up, and I've been singing this all week. I don't know why. Someone put it on Facebook, and it's just been going round around my head. So I'm going to use it and get it in your head. Uh, if you've seen the musical Wicked, the defying gravity, it's time to... D- I can't even remember it now, because I've been singing it all week. I'm going to try defying gravity. We all need to try and defy gravity. No one can pull me down yeah, but Defying Gravity doesn't work. But it doesn't matter. Forget that. It's a great song. It's emotional. It's powerful. And it's time to try Defying Gravity, Uh, all that stuff, right? And that's the basic message. The basic message is you're free to do whatever you want to do. No one can tell you what to do. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Don't let anyone define you. Don't let anyone shape you. Don't let anyone say they're boss over you. Don't just be free. I get to choose. I don't know. Does that does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the culture we're living in? I'm good. I'm special. I'm free. Of course, the <laughs> if that's our culture, then obviously the message of Christ crucified is going to look unimpressive. Because Christ crucified confronts that story at every single point. So obviously, the world is going to look and say, well, that's unimpressive. There's a, Have you heard of the... Um, Sunday Assembly. Anyone heard of the Sunday Assembly? This is a church for people who don't believe in God. Right? Let me show you a a video. It's interesting just to see this. Um, Have a look at their kind of promo video. Um, It looks... Okay, have a look at it. more enthusiastic than me make like of that? It's interesting, isn't it? I think it looks quite good. I think it looks quite attractive. It's sort of, I, I, I like it. It's kind of church without all the negative sin stuff. It's church, it's all the good bits of church, you know, happy, clappy singing and fun and smiling and community. Listen to what they say in their charter. The first line of their charter is this, we're not here to tell you how to live your life we're here to help you be the best version of you you can be do you see that 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 is so attractive to our world because that is that's what our world longs for you're good you're special you're free we're not going to tell you how to live we just want to help you be the best you can and then along comes the church which says actually you know what You're not good. No one is good, not even one. All have fallen short of God's standards. Do you not not see? Of course the gospel is going to look unimpressive. And it would be dead easy for us to go, oh, let's just do that. We could pull that off. We could pull off a happy, happy thing that looks impressive to the world. But in order to do that, you have to get rid of Christ crucified. There were ten in the bed, and the little one said, roll over. And when the church rolls over, Christ falls out. But I want to show you something. Look what Paul does, okay? I want you to look down there. we've, We've thought about our culture. We've thought about what our world is saying to some extent. Have a look at verse 26. Here's Paul. He goes into a primary school assembly in Corinth. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. He basically writes to this church and he says, you know what, you're not special, You're not some special group of people who have this wonderful, beautiful personality. You're not. You're the despised. You are the the things that are not. Of course, that feels so shocking to our culture. But here is the thing. What God is doing is he's making it so that we do not boast in ourselves. Wait, there's something really beautiful coming. Because this is not a message that goes, yes, you're not good, you're not special, and you're not free. So shut up and stop having fun. That's not the message of Paul. Paul's message is, you are not good, you are not special, you are not free, but let me show you something. Have a look at verse 30. It is because of him, because of God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says what there is in the gospel, in this message of Christ crucified is a message that becomes for us a new wisdom a wisdom from God different from the wisdom of the world a a wisdom from God do you notice the words Christ becomes our righteousness in other words Christ takes me in all my failure and all my sin and he makes me good he makes me good he forgives all my sin. He takes all of my junk, my failure. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to act to be to be something I'm not. I say, Jesus, you know what? I'm an utter failure. I've failed in so many ways. But Jesus went to a cross and died. Christ crucified. And as he died, he bought forgiveness from me. And he gives me righteousness. So now when you ask me how I'm doing, you know what I'll say? I'm good. I'm good. And when you say, by whose standards are you good? I'll say, God. God looks at my life and he says, you're good. You're righteous. Because of Christ, it's because you are in Christ Jesus. It's your relationship with Christ Jesus that has made you righteous. Therefore, you don't have to try to win anyone's approval. You don't have to try and prove yourself. You don't have to demonstrate how good you are. You don't have to live better. You're righteous. God looks at your life and he is pleased. He has become for us our righteousness. He's become our holiness. You know what holiness means? It means that you are special. It means that God has taken you And he's taken you from that place of being a nobody. And he said, oh, my precious child, I'm going to take you and I'm going to set you apart for myself. You are mine. You are special. But your specialness, is that even a word? Your specialness does not come from your performance or your looks or your grades. It comes from the fact that in Christ you've been set apart for God. You belong to him. So this afternoon, you need when you feel like I'm not special, I I just feel rubbish, I feel so unworthy. Here's what you need to say Christ gave his life for me, he's forgiven my sin, he's set me apart. I'm I'm special, holy for God. Christ has become our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. You know what redemption means? It means you've been set. In Christ, you have true freedom. There was a time that I know that we say, I know that we love to say, we're free, we're free, we're free. I'm not free. You're not free. The Bible says we're slaves. We're enslaved to sin, and that's why life's so frustrating. Because I think I'm free, and I want to defy gravity, but gravity's so annoying. Because when I jump out the window, it always wins. And however much I defy it and I say, shut up, gravity, I'm plunging towards my death. And sin is like that. It has a hold on us. It always pulls us down. And then Christ comes and he's our redemption. And when he died on the cross, he set us free from slavery to sin. Here is the new story of the Christian. Christ has become my righteousness, my holiness, my redemption. And the story that our world longs for. I'm good, I'm special, I'm free. In Christ becomes I am righteous, I am holy, I am redeemed. This is good. And that is why verse 31 says, Therefore, as it is written... Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Of course I boast in him. Because he's done it all. I now boast and I say it's not about me. But it's all about Christ. He's done all of this for me. And I want to say as gently as I can. But the Sunday Assembly and the message of our world... Ultimately leads you to slavery, because you spend your life trying to win approval, you spend your life trying to demonstrate your special, you live your life trying to be free. And one of the songs that they love to sing is, uh, "Take that passion and make it happen. I'm going to dance right through the night." And that's fine. That's fine for a short chunk of life, isn't it? I can dance right through the night but I can't dance right through my death. And I can't dance through my cancer and my old age and my pain. I can't dance through that. I need something better. I need Christ. That's why we boast of Christ. That's why we're a church which unashamedly will tell you week after week after week, boast in Christ. Look at Christ. He's everything. So if you're hungry... For acceptance and love and value and worth and freedom. Look no further than Christ. Give up on the world's wisdom. Pursue wisdom that comes from him. Second question. Are we still alive? <laughs> I'll take that. I'm going to carry on. Uh, here's the second question. How do we embrace unimpressiveness? Right? Right? We've thought a bit about the philosophers of this age. What does it look like for us to embrace unimpressiveness? Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. Do you see that Paul says, I made this... Resolu-, okay, resolution is something you have to do when you're in danger of drifting away. It's, it's, uh, I, don't, you know, I don't resolve to eat chocolate. That's, that's not kind of... I wake up and go, today, right? Today is the day when I'm going to eat chocolate chocolate all day. You resolve to do things that are harder than that. <laughs> that's, that's a rubbish New Year's resolution, right? Oh, I don't know. Uh, Paul says, I'm going to resolve because I face the temptation to try and be impressive. I face the temptation to drag me away, to kind of try and pander to the world's wisdom. I, I, Paul says, I resolve to not do that. No! I'm going to preach Christ crucified. Nothing but Christ crucified. Not eloquence, not human wisdom. So here's our problem, right? Does that mean if we're going to embrace unimpressiveness, that we've basically just got to be rubbish? We should get the worst musicians to, to play at the front. If you, if you know how to play guitar, you're out. We just need rubbish. Okay, we'll have we'll have an audition to see who's the worst and anyone who can't sing, they can come and sing at the front because we'd hate it to rely on human ability and performance, right? And we'll get the worst preacher, which may already be the case. Uh, we'll get the worst preacher, we'll get the worst this, we'll do it as badly as... No. The opposite of impressive is not mediocre. I want to show you something and this... I hope will really help you with this question because lots of us will struggle with this. this I, I, I'm very excited about this. So here's, here's what I want to show you. In order to embrace unimpressiveness, you pursue excellence. You have to understand the difference between impressive and Excellent. Impressive is all about drawing attention to me. I do it to impress, to impress myself on you. I want you to see how great I am. Impressive is all about you thinking well of me. The pursuit of excellence is something different. It is to say there is something that is so worthy and glorious and wonderful that I'm going to do the very best I can to point to that. That's the pursuit of excellence. Let me show you a really practical example. I hope this will help you. If you've got your Bibles, uh, can you turn to um, 2 Kings 7? Sorry, by which I mean 1 Kings 7. 1 Kings chapter 7. If you can get hold of this idea, this, this little image I'm going to give you, this picture I'm going to give you, it will really help you to understand um, what it means to embrace unimpressiveness. Solomon's building a temple, and when Solomon builds the temple, listen to what we're told. Have a look at chapter 7, verse 15. It's on page 342. So Solomon, he, he builds all sorts of bits. Basically, the temple is a really whopping big building, Okay. And look what it says in verse 15. He cast two bronze pillars, each 18 cubits high and 12 cubits in circumference. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the top of the pillars. Each capital was five cubits high. A network of interwoven chains adorned the capitals on top of the pillars, seven for each capital. He made pomegranates in two rows encircling each network to decorate the capitals on top of the pillars. He did the same for each capital. The capitals on top of the pillars in the portico were in the shape of lilies, four cubits high. On the capitals of both pillars, above the bowl-shaped part, next to the network, were the 200 pomegranates in rows all around. He erected the pillars at the portico of the temple. The pillar to the south he named Jakin, and the one to the north he named Boaz. The capitals on top were in the shape of lilies and so the work on the pillars was completed. So just take the pillars, right? The pillars were, I don't know, something like 10 metres high. What's on the top of the 10 meter high pillar? This incredibly intricate, beautiful capital thing. Which I mean, I assume is a stone thing. It is beautifully ornate. It is a master craftsman who does it. And it's plonked on top of this 10 meter pillar where people can barely even see it. It's so high. And in the building of the temple, over and over again, you see this. It's a, it's a work of art. It is beautiful. You do it to the best. You use gold. You use precious stones. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Okay, now come to Mark 13. So this will make sense in a second. Mark 13. Page 1018. Mark 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, it's not quite the same temple, but don't worry about that, it's similar. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do You see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Why? Why was this beautiful building... Which was built for the glory of God, why was it suddenly now under Jesus going to be destroyed? Well, because what had switched from being the pursuit of excellence in the glory of God had become impressive. Look at these buildings. Look at our temple. Isn't it magnificent? What a magnificent building. And as soon as something becomes impressive, Jesus says, that needs to go. The temple is to be thrown down. Because human impressiveness is absolutely against God. It is an offence to him. When we take something which is for his glory and we use it to bring glory to ourselves, it will be destroyed. And I just wonder if that's a helpful image. There is this beautiful temple being built for the glory of God. It's terrific and it's glorious and it's majestic. And then it becomes impressive and it's destroyed. And what Paul is saying in Corinthians, when he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. He said, I did not come trying to be impressive. That was not what I came to do. But Paul absolutely pursued excellence for the glory of God. In fact, two chapters later in 1 Corinthians, he says, because the church is now the temple. The church is the place where God's glory is put on display. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's going to say, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So if you are a musician, then you play your banjo for the glory of God with all the skill and all the ability he's given you constantly bringing glory to him, pointing to him away from yourself, pointing to him. The moment it becomes, I want people to look at me, I want people to look at me, that's now the pursuit of impressiveness. Do you see? And that's true whatever you're doing, whether you're a small group leader or you're a banker or a hairdresser or whatever you're doing, do it all for the glory of God, pointing to him. that is how we pursue preaching Christ crucified, not to be impressive, but to point to God. So I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is that you are good at. I don't know what it is, the abilities that God's given you. I don't know what it is that you love to do to serve him. I wonder, will you pray, Heavenly Father, help me to do this, not, for myself, not to be impressive, but to bring glory to you, to pursue excellence. Do it to the very best of your ability so that he gets glory. Oh, and just one thing. You'll never perfectly do that. I don't think I've ever preached a sermon where I have preached purely for the glory of God because my heart is still very torn. I don't think any musician has ever played purely for the glory of God because our hearts are torn. I don't think anyone has ever done anything pure. Maybe Jesus did. But the rest of us, we still have that longing for to be impressive, to be good, to be special, to be free. We still have that yearning within us. So don't let it hold you back. Just confess it. It's what I have to do every time I preach. I have to confess, Heavenly Father, that was I'm proud, I'm so full of pride. Forgive me. And I pray that what I've done would be be used by you for your glory. That's the Christian life. So here it is. You preach Christ crucified. You preach Christ because this is the better story that our world desperately needs to hear. He is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. And you preach Christ crucified because that's how you pursue excellence. And you fight the desire to be impressive. And you constantly point people to Christ. We're going to pray and we're going to ask that God would help us in this fight. And when we fail and when we mess it up, Jesus is gracious and He forgives us and He says, right, let's try again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we see in our own hearts how easily we tip over from doing things for your glory, pursuing excellence, to actually be pursuing impressiveness. Lord, we confess that. We feel it in our hearts. We feel that tug to want to be impressive. Lord, forgive us. And we pray that we'd be like those pillars in the temple, which are beautiful and mostly not seen, but are bringing glory to you. Father, help us to fight it. Lord, we don't want to be an impressive church, but we do want to be a church that pursues excellence, that does things for your glory, to point to you. Father, we thank you that we have a Christ, we have a king who is our righteousness, our holiness and our redemption, and we worship you in his name. Amen.